Section 32 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 2. The Coming of Bonaparte. Part 1. A year after the reaction of Thermidor, the Republic was again on the eve of civil war. The fall of Robespierre had removed that soul of tense Republican energy which had created armies, organized victory, and governed a country in circumstances of unparalleled distress. And now, in a relaxing of every fibre, a general indifference and indolence, a longing for pleasure and luxury and wealth, seemed suddenly to invade the strenuous nation to set it smiling and trifling and dreaming with its enemy still in the gate a new class had arisen speculators and stock jobbers estate agents contractors especially army contractors enriched with the spoils of the revolution and much inclined to think after the manner of a certain pope that since god had seen fit to give them the republic they would enjoy it france had disarmed three of her foes and had enlarged her borders in seventeen ninety five the peace of baal made spain her ally while prussia yielded her the left bank of the rhine peace with holland followed in three years france had added to her territory nine new departments had gained the rhine and belgium had filled out her natural limits those three years had done more than the three preceding centuries in blaming the crimes of the convention let us remember its benefits the romans of old forgave much to the conqueror who enlarged the circuit of the city the republic had expanded the pomoirium of france within doors too the convention had not been idle had elaborated a scheme of popular education had founded most of the great public colleges that exist today ecole normale polytechnique saint cyr conservatoire des arts et métiers at once beneficent and criminal the convention had let no sacrifice and no scruple divert it from its task but it had ruled with an absolute power a rod of iron and tyranny whether it be of a king or a convention soon exhausts the gratitude of those who benefit from its exactions so now the heroic and terrible convention come to its natural term of three years was expiring amid the impatience of a public eager to get rid of it a public in love with mediocrity but the convention could not accept its end chiefly from love of power and partly no doubt from patriotism it clung to office remembering the disorganization which had followed its own election when no single deputy had any experience of affairs the convention issued a decree two-thirds of the members of the new legislative assembly were to be chosen from its body the royalists and girondins greeted this audacious fiat with shouts of rage down with the assassins death to the commune down with the terror while the democratic sections of the city openly threatened a counter-revolution and spoke of the right of the sovereign people to change the form of its government at its own sweet will as often as it pleased 
the convention which had sent louis the sixteenth to the scaffold which had beheaded marie antoinette which had exterminated the girondins and sacrificed its own leaders danton robespierre saint just was now in its turn menaced with the customary fate of tyrants but the terrorists of yesterday were men of resolution they meant to die hard and fight in self-defence aware that paris intended to attack them at their next meeting the convention prepared itself to stand a siege barras one of the leaders remembered a young small sombre corsican officer who had brilliantly recovered toulon from the english he sent for this young general buonaparte for thus they wrote his name and so napoleon enters our field of vision he was twenty-six years of age ignorant original full of projects and ideas what the germans call a world-mender a weltverbesserer nothing ever astonished me so much as to see m bonaparte win battle after battle said a french officer of the old school to stendhal in berlin he talked so much i expected nothing from a man so full of interminable discussions he wished to reform everything in the state except in military tactics the practice of artillery mathematics rousseau's theories and plutarch's lives napoleon though a great reader was no scholar he had little latin and less greek he was singularly ill-instructed even in the recent discoveries of science but he was a logical dreamer and as i have said more than once that is the sort which does great things in france he talked when occasion occurred to expatiate on his special hobby but he was capable of infinite silence and self-absorption he talked but he had no small talk and even when eloquent he often looked silent his gaze was so sombre and so fixed this profound inward glance struck every observer who has left us his impression of the young napoleon but for its beauty he would have seemed but an ugly little man so meagre so painfully wasted so sallow with a great shock of unkempt brown hair hanging in untidy spaniel's ears over his cheeks and down below his chin altogether too much hair said a lady who liked him to stendhal for so much eyes and yet to an artist's thinking those wasted drawn features those great grey eyes so deeply sunk under the frontal arch held the promise of classic beauty especially the chiselled mouth there was little of the soldier about him said stendhal's informant nothing military martial loud or dashing he looked desperately poor but then he was paid in paper money i think we might have read even then in the contour of his exquisite lips that he despised danger and that danger never made him lose his self-command this lady may have been lord permont duchesse d'abrantes the portrait is so like her description of the napoleon she knew from his youth up or was she madame victorine de chastenay her account corroborates e de neuville who a few years later noticed bonaparte as a shabby untidy little man something like a clerk or an usher petit maigre les cheveux collés sur les tempes en air de négligence extrême utterly insignificant until he transfixed you with that piercing investigating penetrating gaze no man ever forgot 
A recent controversy in the Times has discussed the question of Napoleon's height. He seems to have been just over five feet six inches in stature, counting English inches. The old French P.A. and Pousse are not the same. Five foot six is not very small for a southerner, and yet Napoleon is always spoken of as a little man. But he was ill-proportioned, the bust too long for his legs, and even in youth he stooped and poked his head. He was then as much too spare as in later life he became too corpulent for his height. We remember how little Lord Permont, when first she saw him in uniform, laughed at his scraggy shanks emerging from the wide tops of his immense hessians, and how her sister dubbed the young lieutenant Puss in Boots. Dans sa jeunesse, she says elsewhere, Napoleon était laid. His sallow skin, yellow, almost gray, and his drawn thin features made this ugliness. As he grew stouter and stronger, the complexion warmed to a pleasant ivory, agreeable to the sight, although to a practiced eye, its utter colorlessness might have foretold that malady of the digestion which had killed his father and which will leave our hero barely another five and twenty years into which to crowd his ample destiny. A nervous jerk of the right shoulder, frequent in moments of excitement or emotion as well as something emaciated, fatal, avid, sombre in the whole aspect of the man, made him seem marked out for a tragic, not for a glorious destiny. His appearance foreshadowed St. Helena, not the empire. Such was the man whom Barras summoned to rescue the deputies of France. At this period young Bonaparte was still a Jacobin. The younger Robespierre had been his friend. He had admired Maximilien. It is probable that in his heart of hearts he sympathized with the sections, a sort of town councils of Paris rather than with these two prehensile deputies. Still, they represented authority. And they had sent for him. It was his chance. That opportunity which a prompt genius seizes by the forelock. He considered a moment and said that he must have cannon. Where was there a battery? There was one, he was told, just outside Paris at the park of Sablon, but it was thought that the local militia of the sections was already in possession. We must have it, remarked our young man, mused a moment, and dispatched a friend of his in the cavalry, a young daredevil called Murat, full speed to Sablon at the head of a company of chasseurs. Murat routed the bourgeois of the Garde Nationale and brought forty cannon back to Paris, which Bonaparte installed all round the Tuileries. That expedition was to bring them each a crown. On the morrow, 13th Vendée Mer, in the year 3, 5th of October, 1795, 40,000 Gardes Nationaux attacked the Tuileries. In those days there was no Rue de Rivoli. Few streets, and very narrow, led from the Rue Saint-Honoré to the palace and the gardens. In one of these narrow passages, Bonaparte established a battery that swept the steps of Saint-Roche. The front of that church still shows the scars of the bullets that stopped the rush of the sections in that direction. Another battery commanded the Rue de Richelieu, a third the bridge and the keys of the south bank. By nightfall, the insurrection was suppressed, and a few days later, the grateful convention appointed the little Corsican to be general-in-chief commanding the armies of the interior, that is to say, all those not engaged in the invasion of Europe. 
such a position says napoleon in his memoirs is not suitable to a general of twenty-five before the ensuing spring was in full flower the government granted the desire of his heart in march seventeen ninety six he was sent to command the armies in italy the bridegroom five days old of a beautiful woman whom he passionately adored he left paris his eyes blind with tears but his heart all on fire with the lust of conquest prussia and holland had laid down their arms and had yielded their claims to the left bank of the rhine but austria the empire the ally of yesterday and now the enemy of france was obstinate in maintaining her sovereignty the struggle of france with austria had filled the history of centuries the alliance had been a trifle of less than forty years it had never been popular it had never seemed natural and when the gironde had declared war on austria in seventeen ninety two the opening of hostilities had been greeted with national enthusiasm now after four years of battles austria and england still held out the republic sent one army to invade the empire another under bonaparte was dispatched across the alps england must wait her turn End of section thirty two